You're listening to Teachers Talk Radio with Tom Hopkins Burke. Your show will begin shortly. Tune in, talk it out. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Oh, look, it's Sunday, it's 3pm and this is the afternoon show with me, Tom Hopkins Burke. Today we're discussing supporting deaf young people in the classroom and the future of exams and assessment. This is your show, so give me your views, text in and call in to share your thoughts on the show. Tune in, talk it out, live on Podbean. This is Teachers Talk Radio. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. We are back, we are live, and we are ready to go. Welcome to the Afternoon Show on Teachers Talk Radio. My name is Tom Hopkins Burke. Today is Sunday the 3rd of October, and I have a 90-minute show for your entertainment, and hopefully for your CPD needs too. If you're tuning in today expecting to hear the dulcet tones of Dr. Harin Otieno, you've come to the right place, but just not at the right time this week. Dr. Harin has work commitments this Sunday, which means she's unable to host this show today. That's why I'm here to step in. And if you're a usual listener to some of my content and wondering why on earth you're hearing my voice on a Sunday rather than a Saturday, let me fill you in. I hosted 21 shows on a Saturday afternoon, most recently four weekends ago. Unfortunately, due to other commitments, not least working behind the scenes at Teachers Talk Radio, I've had to give up my Saturday show. Not to worry, though, the Saturday lunch is in very safe hands from next weekend with Joseph Hammond taking up the reins. What does this mean for me? Well, it doesn't mean I've stopped hosting, not at all. What it does mean is when some hosts are unable to host their shows on a particular week, for whatever reason, it might be illness, work commitments, conferences, family reasons, whatever it is, you may well find that I'm lurking in the shadows, ready and waiting to step in. Now, since I haven't been on for a month, what I want to know from you today is this. How's your return to work been the last month? What have been the highlights? Have you found your workload has increased exponentially? Do you know where the school intends to improve this year before next September? And do you know your role in helping your school achieve its goals? And when it comes to workload, is September the new November this year? My return to work has been quite good, to be honest. Yes, we had the open evening for year six on Thursday, which was unbelievably tiring. But there was a buzz around the school that evening. We were proud to show off our school. For a lot of parents, I reckon a third or maybe more, history was the first department they came to see in the whole evening. So I felt like I was back in customer service, smiling, beaming, being all welcoming, 
and making it clear how proud I am to work where I do. Other things I've managed to do, well, we're doing a production as a school, our first one since pre-COVID times. In fact, our last one was just before COVID struck in January 2020. Our production is going to be back to the 80s, and it's a musical featuring the great and the good songs from the 1980s. A few off the top of my head, Footloose, Dirty Dancing, Kids in America, Total Eclipse of a Heart, Man in the Mirror, Video Killed a Radio Star, 500 Miles by the Proclaimers, what a tune. Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Dancing on the Ceiling, Walking on Sunshine, Material Girl, all of the 80s classics, and I'll be on keyboard one. Now, given that there'll be rehearsals every single Monday between now and January, if Rebecca Ricketts or me for lunch aren't hosting on a particular week, you can pretty much guarantee that you won't be hearing from me in that instance. Another highlight of the year so far, I've started teaching politics for the first time in my career with a class of two students. Now, let me tell you something. The marking load's all right for that class. I seem, though, to have an encyclopedic fingertip knowledge of UK politics, which is helpful given that Unit 1 is UK politics. But I do worry about next year when we're looking at US politics. It could be a little bit trickier when I don't necessarily have that knowledge at the fingertips. What about you? Do you teach outside of your specialism? How are you finding it? Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio. It's 3.07pm. Let's go through what we will be discussing today. Today's show is in two parts. Part one is my interview with Polly from the National Deaf Children Society's Youth Advisory Board. I want to hear from you. Have you ever received training on teaching deaf students? Have you ever taught deaf students? How long ago? Have you ever, you know, what challenges did you and they face in the process? Part two of the show is going to be a live calling. I did this format a few times on the Saturdays and we managed to get a few callers in. So fingers crossed we're able to replicate that with our new temporary time slot this afternoon. I will be talking about the future of exams 
Is it time to scrap them for good? Should we return to normal? Or would you prefer a hybrid model? What do you think about the amount of content at GCSE? For a subject like history, I find it unbearable how much content we have to cover. Would you bring back coursework at GCSE? Or would that cause more problems than it would solve? And what about Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 2? The Year 1 phonics screener, the Year 4 times tables tests, the Year 6 sets. Are we overwhelming our younger students with tests, tests, tests? Or do they serve a valuable purpose? And if they do serve a purpose, who's that for? For the kids themselves, for primary schools, for parents, or for secondary schools, so they can magic up progress eight data to hold secondary teachers to account. It's a highly controversial subject exams, and it's something I want to hear from you about, so tune in and talk it out. First, though, I'm going to play you this weekend's education news with our weekend newsreader, Joe Fox, and then I'm going to introduce Polly to you from the National Deaf Children's Society. Make sure you text in your views on the news and on the issues raised by myself and Polly. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Welsh Government is the first in the UK to make teaching black, Asian and minority ethnic histories mandatory in its schools. The announcement reported on the Big Issue news feed was made to coincide with the start of Black History Month. The new curriculum is set to be introduced from September 2022, after it is formally signed off next week. This follows the unveiling earlier this week of the statue of Wales' first black head teacher, Betty Campbell. Ms Campbell was the first person to include black history on the Welsh curriculum, teaching pupils about slavery and its legacy, apartheid in South Africa and the way black people contribute to British society. Jeremy Miles, Welsh Education Minister, said it's vitally important that our education system equips young people to understand and respect their own and each other's histories, cultures and traditions. We must create an education system which broadens our understanding and knowledge of the many cultures that have built Wales. In 2020, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement prompted new calls for the teaching of black history in schools across the UK. The Welsh curriculum will state human societies are complex and diverse and are shaped by human actions and beliefs. It will also include the expectation that learners will develop an understanding of the complex and diverse nature of societies past and present. The Metro is reporting on a story focusing on Ark All Saints Academy in Camberwell, South London, and their decision to ban a number of slang phrases from formal aspects of the curriculum. Phrases like, that's long, meaning something tedious or not worth the effort, and that's a neck, meaning you need a slap for that, as well as fillers such as like and erm, are on the list of phrases that Principal Lucy Fame says are forbidden in some contexts within school. Although she stressed that it was not applicable during social interactions or general use. Instead, she stated the intention was so that it would be used in formal settings to help students understand the importance of expressing themselves clearly and accurately not least through written language in examinations. The decision by Arc All Saints Academy has sparked further debate and comment from such academics, including Dr Marcello Giovanelli from Aston University, who commented that slang has always been at the forefront of linguistic innovation. However, a language consultant at King's College London pointed out that it shouldn't be about good or bad language. It should be about appropriate language for the context. 
The debate about language, its evolution and change is a continuous one in academic and education circles and, it seems, shows no signs of dying down just yet. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News. Thanks to Joe Fox there with the Weekend Education News. Welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio. You're listening to the afternoon show with me, Tom Hopkins-Burke. If you're tuning in expecting to hear from Dr. Heroin Otieno, you've come to the right place, but unfortunately, Dr. Heroin is unable to host this Sunday. Now it's time for my interview with Polly from the National Deaf Children's Society's Youth Advisory Board. I'm delighted to be joined on Zoom by Polly. Polly is part of the Young People's Advisory Board who are elected to run campaigns for the National Deaf Children's Society. The board is running a new campaign called Hands Up to improve education for deaf students at schools and colleges across the country. Part of this involves running a big survey to find out how teachers educate deaf children and whether teachers get enough support along the way. Polly and the other deaf young people part of the campaign are aiming to reach as many teachers as possible. So I'm delighted to have the opportunity to interview Polly on Teachers Talk Radio. Once they have results, I'll be campaigning. So Polly, how have you found a return to school in the last month or so? Um, I have found it's definitely been um, a mixed experience um, in that some teachers I have have, have good deaf awareness because I um, have had them before. Um, and just for a bit of context, um, I just started year 12 in A-levels and I stayed on at my um, school sixth form and so some of the teachers therefore taught me before and are familiar with my needs however some new teachers i do find that um, they need more reminding of some of the deaf awareness um, like uh, repeating what other students in the class say uh, when they give answers um, because i just i miss out and i don't uh, hear or, uh, what they say otherwise um, or really basic things like putting subtitles on videos and um, that's always been uh, an issue uh, both throughout school I find but generally it has been okay um, and what makes me really pleased is that most of my teachers if they do wear a face mask they remember to um, take it down and social distance uh, when talking to me because they know that I can't follow what they're saying um, in a face mask because I have to lip read them. Do any of your teachers or have any of your teachers ever worn a clear face mask? I interviewed Dina Mandel back in March um, of this year to talk about her campaign for clear masks in schools. Have any of your teachers worn a clear mask at all? Is that something you'd be in favour of if they haven't? Uh, yes, yeah, so last year, um, bet uh, uh, between March and June, when I was in year 11, we had um, clear face mask provided for uh, for all of my teachers, which is really, really useful because um, if a teacher didn't feel comfortable not wearing a mask, then uh, instead they would wear a clear face mask, uh, which I really, really helped because um, I didn't realise how much uh, I did actually needed to rely on um, lip reading in the class, even though I still uh, have, even though I have a, um, a something called a radio aid, which is a bit like a microphone that the teacher wears and connects to my hearing aid so that I can hear what they're saying better. Um, and I found that was really, really useful. And my teachers were able to do that um, and didn't, they, there wasn't really much resistance uh, to it. So I really appreciated that. Fantastic, fantastic. Um... So going back in time a bit further to remote education and the lockdowns, um, what were your experiences of remote education and what were some of the biggest challenges you faced along the way? I think um, for the first 
a big lockdown, we um, that my school didn't have any live lessons and it was all PowerPoint with pre-recorded videos. However, these uh, pre-recorded videos were tiny little boxes in the corner of the screen. And I, I mean, I couldn't see the teacher's lips. The sound quality was often really poor. Um, so I often found it really hard to list hear what uh, the what was being said. Uh, so I had to find myself keep on replaying the same thirty second clip just for like each slide on a PowerPoint, which was as you can imagine very very time consuming. Um, but when it came to the second uh, lockdown, my school did live lessons, and uh, all the teachers had their cameras on, but all the te uh, pupils had their p uh, cameras off. But with the teachers, uh, even though they had their cameras on, sometimes they would uh, not have their camera positioned rightly. So half, some, for some half my teachers, their mouths were covered up, but their camera wasn't positioned properly at all, or there'd be a shadow across their face, um, or there would be a washing machine going on in the background, uh, or like they, I had um, someone's family member just like doing the dishes in the background once, um, and it's all sort of that background noise and. Just they're really, really small things that actually, from a deaf perspective, really build up and make it really difficult um, to follow a lesson. Yeah, I, I was just, I was just saying before we started recording the interview that I've done my deaf awareness training at school today, and and Polly's just mentioned so many of the things which are we covered in that. For example, ensuring that you're blocking sunlight so that there's no shadow across your face, that you're eliminating background noise because with some um, other forms of hearing aids, and um, background noise is one of the worst things you can possibly do, and reducing that is so important. So you know, even in my brain, I'm sure there'll be other teachers listening at the moment who are thinking, oh well, this makes common sense, and I mean it's just standard practice anyway for any student never mind a deaf student so um really interesting to hear that so when you came back to school and when you've come back to school in september as well um how have your friends supported you at school with your hearing impairment well actually a lot of my um closer friends we've all actually gone to different uh sick forms so I'm um, finding making myself um, new friends or getting to know some people who I didn't know so well before. And I do find that um, the deaf awareness maybe isn't there as much. So people don't always uh, speak up uh, maybe as loudly as they should, or they don't always face me when they're talking. And things like that that I've almost taken to come to uh, take for granted with my friends, I realise I'm missing. But I feel that um, my sort of confidence in my deafness had grown a bit. So when before I would just sort of maybe not ask someone to repeat something or just sort of sit there and not mention my deafness. Now I'm actually able to say, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm actually deaf and I wear hearing aids. So um, could you like, repeat that? I'm not actually, um, uh, so I'm not always going to be able to follow what you're saying. And people are like, oh, right, okay. And then often um, people actually be really interested. And I've had a have had a few questions as well, which um, which is always nice because um, it's nice when people are sort of curious um, uh, as it means that they want to learn more about it. So when they learn more about it, you're actually, um, from a deaf person's perspective, benefiting uh, from, from it because they'll be more keen to support you. Really good. So you've done your GCSEs, you went through the same um, process of teacher assessed grades as every other student. You're now doing your A levels. What are you studying at A level and what are your hopes um, for the remainder of your education? Um, so, for A levels, I'm doing geography, English literature, and politics. And um, I just started doing those. Um, and so, I'm hoping to 
do those in the next couple of years. And then I um, I suspect I will go uh, to university, although I'm not 100% sure yet. And what exactly I'll study at university, I'm still not sure. Um, it's all very much a big question mark um, at the moment in terms of my future. But what I do know is that my deafness will absolutely no way stop me from doing whatever I want to do. Yes, I may need extra support in place uh, to be able to access um, uh, even more than my lessons, like external, um, out of lesson support, like one-to-one -one consolidation work and things like that um, uh, may be needed. And all things like a note taker or a scribe um, in lectures in university. Uh, so as long as I have those things in place, um, if I need them, then there's absolutely no way that my deafness would stop me from doing whatever I like to do. Great. And what do you think the biggest barriers are to getting that support, in your view? Um, pardon, can you repeat the, that? Please? Of course I can. Um, what do you think the biggest barriers are to getting that support, which you've just talked about? Um, I think the sort of main barriers are people not really realising that actually, like from deaf, the deaf people not realising that they are entitled um, to that support. So sometimes people might sit there and sort of think, oh, well, I shouldn't say anything. Um, even just really, really small things like reminding teachers to put subtitles on uh, on a video clip and things like that, then students might not want to say because they feel like they're a hindrance to the class or um, or things like that, or they just become so used to it that they're like, oh, but that's just what school's like. Isn't it normal to not be able to follow everything in a lesson? Well, no, it's not really. Unfortunately, though, it's, it can become very normal for a lot of deaf young people. Um, and what I say to deaf young people and a really good reminder for teachers as well is that um, deaf young people have a, just as much of a right to their education as their hearing peers um, and actually like there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to access their lessons as well as their hearing peers because this could actually in the long term really impact on a deaf young person's achievements because um, on average um, according to a uh, research the NDCS have done um, deaf students achieve a whole grade less in their GCSE than their hearing peers. And while that might not sound like a huge amount, that really could make all the difference between a pass and a fail uh, in things like English and maths. And it really may well affect uh, how, whether they go on to A-levels or their BTEC, or they're able to go on to university and do the things that they want to do. And um, that really had a big impact. And you, when you look back, you're like, gosh, that, deaf person really the only thing that was sort of holding them back really was deaf awareness um uh, maybe a lack of deaf awareness in schools and of course this isn't the case for every single um deaf student but it is uh there does seem to be a, a pattern of it and you realize that a lot of it uh, could be prevented and actually though it just just i really feel like this deaf awareness um uh in schools lack or lack of the lack of it is uh, really a very big barrier in deaf people being able to achieve everything that they want to be able to achieve. Interesting, thank you. Um, so moving on to your role with the National Deaf Children's Society then, um, how did you get involved in the Young People's Advisory Board? Um, so I, it was back in November 2019, um, I decided to apply 
um, for the uh, NDCS's uh, advisory board um, because it's always been something I was interested in, but I didn't think I'd be able to have the independence um, because pre-COVID, um, we uh, would be going on residentials um, every few months and things, and we're still planning to do them, but we just haven't done them yet. And the residential was actually I found quite kind of scary the prospect of because it meant I'd be going for a weekend away uh, on my own with all these people I haven't met before, uh, all these deaf young people I haven't met before. Um, and I think because my confidence and independence back then really, really wasn't uh, very good at all. So that always helped me back. But then I realised actually, if I think about it, I can overcome these sort of, uh, sort of barriers, if you like. Um, and I, this actually sounds something I really like to do um, because I, I go to a mainstream uh, school. I always have been in a mainstream secondary school. So then I really, I know very, very, very few deaf young people. And I always really wanted to connect with other deaf young people and be able to um, campaign on something that we all really care about. Um, and that's sort of how it came along. And actually, I am. Um, Initially, I didn't get through um, the first sort of round of interviews, but there was a, um, but there, it came that there was a space uh, on their interview day where um, I met loads of other, lots of other deaf young uh, people who were also um, applying for the Youth Advisory Board, and I was able to go there and um, meet them and sort of show that the NDCS got to know me and what I'm like. Um, and I was really, really, really pleased when in March, 2020, um, I got the call saying that I was um, a part of the youth advisory board, and it was um, such uh, such a that was a very good day. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's brilliant to hear. Um, so the young people's advisory board's latest campaign is called Hands Up. Uh, tell us all about Hands Up, this campaign, and what you're hoping to achieve with it. So Hands Up is um, our campaign all about improving deaf awareness uh, in the classroom because we were, when we were discussing campaign ideas, we realised that actually a lot of us, well pretty much all of us, had ex uh, experienced poor deaf awareness at some point in our education, be it from like literally nursery to sixth form, um, we'd all experienced something as just deaf awareness, poor deaf awareness training. And when you look at this uh, statistics and figures, like I mentioned earlier with um, the GCSE grades, you realise this really does have a massive impact. Um, and we realise that for something that is really quite easily solvable, it just seemed really silly not to do a campaign on it because um, it would just seem something there's just all these really small little things that can be fit and actually all these small little things build up to um, have a huge impact and improve uh, deaf young people's lives. Um, yeah. Great, great. So what sort of things will you be asking as part of the campaign? So we have just launched two surveys, one for deaf young people and one for teachers, who, um, which is to sort of figure out what is deaf awareness really like in schools because um, obviously we have our experiences but they're out of the 50,000 deaf young people in the UK it's only 18 of us so there's a lot more experiences out there so we um, so the campaign uh, sorry the uh, survey for deaf young people is trying to see what 
their experience in school is like an example of when they struggle with deaf awareness um like poor encountered poor deaf awareness in their school and how they how they feel about that and how that sort of affects their sort of daily life really um but even more importantly i feel is the um survey for teachers just like you um who which is all about trying to just see who are like um who the teachers are what do they teach have they taught deaf students before what uh, level of education do they teach and have they uh you know do they know how to provide for a deaf young student um in their class uh, and just sort of seeing well what's people's knowledge at and using both those surveys we are hoping to create a, a free deaf awareness training module um which for, for teachers to use and to be able to try and solve those issues of deaf awareness um, in the classroom Fantastic. I'm really interested to hear about this training module. Um, so how do you think we can best raise awareness of the difficulties that deaf young people face both in school and everyday life? You've got the Hands Up campaign, which is one way of doing that. How else can we best raise awareness? Um, well, I think just getting deaf young people experiences out there through um, uh, organisations like the NDTF always really helps because you realise when you hear of individuals' um, experiences, you um, you realise how isolating it can be actually from a um, from a mental perspective for a deaf student if they feel like they can't follow what's going on in the classroom. They just all feel shut off and cut out, um, which is really, really unpleasant. Um, and it's also, um, so I think that's one really good way uh, of raising deaf awareness. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So how can teachers best support you? you? You've been there, you've talked about your experiences of poor deaf awareness. What are your top tips for teachers for best supporting deaf young people in schools? So the, the main one is talk to your deaf student. That's the best way you can do it because there's absolutely no one size fits all approach. Uh, it's all completely individual to the deaf people. What might work for one person will in no way by any means work for the next. Um, but having said that, there are a few really key things that will help everyone actually in the classroom. It's simple things like make sure you face your students when you're talking to them. Please don't, uh, if you do, write on the whiteboard or fiddle with the projector screen while talking. Please don't. It just does not help. Um, things like turning subtitles on, uh, videos, always, always help because that's often um, an issue deaf, uh, deaf students face a lot, um, especially if they use um, hearing equipment such as hearing aids. Uh, the sound, the way the sound processes, it just gets more and more distorted. Uh, so it just, we just hear it really differently and it's really hard to follow. Um, and also things like, I think I mentioned earlier, um, if your students uh, give answers in the class, repeat what they say, doesn't have to be like a verbatim of what they said, but just, you know, sort of interpret it and sort of to consolidate what's been said some uh, deaf students, and I'm definitely one of them, really benefit from having 
a list of things like key terminology um, or concepts that will come up in the lesson and then being given that before the lesson so that they're able to get their heads um, around those because um, from a just perspective learning or hearing uh, new words uh, is for the first time auditory uh, is really um, not very useful for us because it will, it will take a lot longer for us to process it. So for me personally, I find it a lot easier um, if it's written down, um, I can see a written definition of what it means. So that when it comes up in the lessons, like, ah, right, okay, that's what that means. And actually that's been happening, um, not consistently, but it has been happening since I was around about in year five or so. And um, it's whenever, it, when it has happened, it's always been pretty, really useful. And I feel like, ah, yes, I'm, I'm getting this, um, you know, a lot quicker than I would be otherwise. Some really, really useful tips there, I think, for teachers and not just for teaching deaf young people, but actually teaching any young person. I think one of the key things from business the strategies that you've outlined, Polly, are useful for teaching any student and not just a deaf young student as well. I've got two more questions before we finish the interview. Firstly, um, would you support the introduction of British Sign Language as a taught lesson in schools across the country? There's been this interesting debate about what languages should be taught in schools. The government has been trying to introduce and enrol in Latin to 40 state schools. In return, a lot of um, a lot of teachers and a lot of deaf young people, a lot of campaigners have said, why not British Sign Language? So what are your thoughts? Would you support the introduction of British Sign Language as a taught lesson in schools? 100%, I would definitely um, uh, support that, Tom, simply because it's something that really is very valuable um, to any deaf young person, it's, and especially uh, those who are BSL users. Um, and it just means that you're able to communicate uh, with a deaf young person uh, or any deaf person in the future, um, and especially in situations where it might be an emergency um, of some sort, and you have to uh, find yourself communicating with a deaf person, it will be extremely, extremely useful in that sort of situation and also um, I think employers would actually quite like BSL because so many uh, students in general I feel now are leaving school with some sort of uh, GCSE or A-level and you know French, German, Latin, it's becoming increasingly common and they always, uh, well at least in my school, they always used to say do a modern foreign language you know it's really good for your CV so many people do it, it probably doesn't have any effect anymore. So actually BSL would probably be really beneficial. And on top of that, it will be, it will just feel very different, I think, to any other um, sort of language lesson because you're not, you know, sitting down, writing out um, verbs or, you know, trying to speak it or listen to it. You're actually using your hand. It's a lot more um, sort of uh, gesticulative, if you like. And there's a lot more expression and sort of facial expressions involved as well. And it makes it, um, I think it just makes it a lot more um, alive almost. Hmm. That last point, very interesting about gestures. And I went, I went to a conference last Saturday and a couple of speakers spoke about the power of gestures. We're not talking about British Sign Language here, but simply sort of moving your body and moving your hands as you're talking and how actually that helps to communicate the message um, just, you know, more easily than with just words, especially in the context of remote education as well. So really interesting thoughts there. And then finally, the second half of the show on Sunday 
is going to be talking about the future of exams and the future of assessment. Um, you've done, well, you, you've done teacher assessed grades, you've gone through the teacher assessed grades process, you're going to be sitting your A-levels in 2023. What changes would you like to see made to exams? Did teacher assessment work for you? And what, how would you change exams if you could? So personally, um, the teacher assessed grade really did um, definitely work in my favour, um, simply because uh, actually related to deafness, I do have an issue when it comes to conciseness and writing to time, which means I have 25% extra time in all my exams. Um, and one of the things I really struggled with was um, exam technique and being able to write time. So that I knew what to say, I just had too much of it, of it to say. And that, although that might sound good, it's not good when all you ever do is the first two paragraphs of every essay. Not good at all. So for that reason, it really worked in my favor because I didn't have any exams in time conditions that were uh, really being assessed. Um, but in the future, I think, um, in the future, I, I feel like the reality is we will have to go back to some form of exams, but I don't think it should all up 100% be exams because the amount of stress it causes people, not just deaf young people, but everyone is insane. And it's just like, it's not fair at all um, to sort of put all that unnecessary stress uh, on people. And also, um, I feel like there could be a lot of deaf students who um, are entitled to extra, extra time or things like that but might not be able to get it in time for whatever reason, or they might not sort of, for some reason, like their teachers might deny it to them because they think, well, your deafness doesn't affect it. Yes, it does, because simply through um, processing for any deaf student, it's going to be harder um, and more tiring as well. And especially when it comes to uh, language exams and for listening um, exam you uh, i had a live speaker um in mind which meant i didn't have to listen to a recording i had a i had a teacher sitting in front of me saying the transcript um so i think it would be good to have a mix maybe of teacher assessed coursework um and uh sort of exam to just put that stress off people and also you have a best mix of like the best of both worlds and um, you get experience of exams and you can see if exams don't really do play to your strength and for some reason for some people they're really good at exams they find that they 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 work really well at that as opposed to a long-term project where they might struggle in procrastination or motivation um so i think it just having the best of both worlds um would be really useful Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to the show, Polly, and thank you so much for being interviewed. Um, and I hope you have a fantastic time doing your A-levels and the very best of luck. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for having me. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash 
Phonics. Hello everyone and welcome to the History Hotline, the hottest line for all things black history and beyond. I'm your host, Diana Lynn Cook, making space for honest conversations about black British, Caribbean and African history. Here to teach you all the things left out of your school books. Make sure you subscribe to the History Hotline on all good podcast platforms. Follow us on social media at the History Hotline on Instagram and at the History HL on Twitter to find out about new upcoming episodes. Do you struggle with people pleasing? Is it a constant battle managing different and difficult personalities? Why not inspire, challenge and empower your team through the Mal CPD Essential Coaching Skills for School Leaders course or gain practical skills to become a strong and compassionate leader through the assertive leadership and the emotionally intelligent leader courses. All Mal CPD courses are accredited by the Institute of Leadership and Management. Find out more at www.malcpd.com. Welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio. It is 3.40pm and you're listening to The Afternoon Show with me, Tom Hopkins. But if you're tuning in expecting to hear from Dr. Harreen Otieno, you've come to the right place. But unfortunately, Dr. Harreen is unable to host his Sunday. Why not stay with me, though? We'll talk about exams and assessment next. So I want to hear your thoughts, especially if you teach outside of England and you use a different examination system or none at all. Um, Thanks to Polly for agreeing to come on to Teachers Talk Radio. What a fantastic interviewee. Someone talking from direct personal experience, but choosing to focus on the positives of being a deaf young person in the English education system. Going through teacher assessed grades and embarking on her A-levels. As you'll have heard, I've completed my own deaf awareness training as recently as two days ago. And here are some of the things I would recommend from a teacher's perspective. Um, If students are wearing hearing aids in your classroom, ensure they're a short distance away from you. The problem with classrooms is that your students are going to be more than three feet away from you and they're not always a quiet environment. So just ensure your students are as close to you as possible. Ensure that your classrooms are as quiet as possible. And of course, if students need to lip read, as a lot of deaf young people do, ensure you are facing the pupil. It sounds obvious, but don't cover your face or mouth. Make sure you use a normal rate of delivery and volume. So don't overemphasize lip movements. Your face also needs to be appropriately lit. This is something I hadn't thought about. So if there is bright light from the sun or from windows, it should be shining in your eyes um, and not deaf persons. And of course, put subtitles on your videos. You've probably played videos before without subtitles. Um, At Teachers Talk Radio, most of our shows are live streamed on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube with closed captioning. But what about you? I want to hear from you. Have you ever taught a deaf student? If so, what support and training did you receive? You may never have taught a deaf student and you may still have received support and training. What did that look like? Why not call in or text in and tell me what you think? is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Welsh Government is the first in the UK to make teaching black, Asian and minority ethnic histories mandatory in its schools. The announcement reported on the Big Issue newsfeed was made to coincide with the start of Black History Month. 
The new curriculum is set to be introduced from September 2022, after it is formally signed off next week. This follows the unveiling earlier this week of the statue of Wales' first blackhead teacher, Betty Campbell. Ms Campbell was the first person to include black history on the Welsh curriculum, teaching pupils about slavery and its legacy, apartheid in South Africa and the way black people contribute to British society. Jeremy Miles, Welsh Education Minister, said it's vitally important that our education system equips young people to understand and respect their own and each other's histories, cultures and traditions. We must create an education system which broadens our understanding and knowledge of the many cultures that have built Wales. In 2020, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement prompted new calls for teaching of black history in schools across the UK. The Welsh curriculum will state human societies are complex and diverse and are shaped by human actions and beliefs. It will also include the expectation that learners will develop an understanding of the complex and diverse nature of societies past and present. The Metro is reporting on a story focusing on Ark All Saints Academy in Camberwell, South London, and their decision to ban a number of slang phrases from formal aspects of the curriculum. Phrases like, that's long, meaning something tedious or not worth the effort, and that's a neck, meaning you need a slap for that, as well as fillers such as like and erm, are on the list of phrases that Principal Lucy Fame says are forbidden in some contexts within school. Although she stressed that it was not applicable during social interactions or general use. Instead, she stated the intention was so that it would be used in formal settings to help students understand the importance of expressing themselves clearly and accurately, not least through written language and examinations. The decision by Arc All Saints Academy has sparked further debate and comment from such academics, including Dr. Marcello Giovanelli from Aston University who commented that slang has always been at the forefront of linguistic innovation. However, a language consultant at King's College London pointed out that it shouldn't be about good or bad language. It should be about appropriate language for the context. The debate about language, its evolution and change is a continuous one in academic and education circles and, it seems, shows no signs of dying down just yet. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News. Welcome back to Teachers Talk Radio and the afternoon show with me, Tom Hopkinsburg. On to part two and the final part of our show. For the last two years, students in Year 11 and Year 13 have not had external exams, nor have Year 6 students sat external SATs. In 2020, students in Year 11 and 13 faced a system of centre-assessed grades, and this summer they faced teacher-assessed grades. Some organisations, like the National Education Union, have pounced on this to push forward demands for an end or an amendment to external examinations. Interestingly, last weekend, Joint General Secretary of the NEU, Dr Mary Bowsted, said that the NEU is not against exams. They're the right way to assess some things, but they're not the best and fairest way to assess all young people. So if Mary's right, and exams aren't the best and fairest way to assess all young people, what is, or... How can we make exams better and fairer? This is an open forum. I want to hear from you on your thoughts for the future of assessment and exams. So make sure you do call in or text in with your thoughts on this topic. I want to hear from you. You have the opportunity to win a Teachers Talk Radio mug should you call in. Now, last June, Mary Bowsted retweeted a video from the Independent Assessment Commission 
which contains zero practicing classroom teachers, and yet is talking about changing assessment and exams in schools. I don't think, in my view, you can authoritatively do that without having a classroom teacher in your ranks. The video states the following. I want you to tell me how many of these statements you agree with. Firstly, the purpose of education has to be about helping young people go into society and be positive contributors, both socially and economically. I don't think I agree with that one. What about you? I think a conveyor-bound approach to education is set out there, whereby we're merely preparing young people for employment. It's a reductive approach. Another statement from a young person this time in the video. We're just learning how to prepare for the exams and our whole mind is focused on that. I tend to agree on that point. I think some schools tend to take an exam factory approach, whereby teaching for the test leads to an overemphasis on exam technique and exam readiness, often at the expense of ambitious curriculum. And this is compounded by multiple sets of mock exams before the real thing. Surely this can't be the right approach. I heard from Sam Strickland at Research Head Knotts last Saturday, and he was saying in his school they do one set of mocks in year 10 and one set of mocks in year 11. That's a more sensible approach, I feel. There's also the issue of content, and certainly in GCSE history, it's utterly ridiculous the amount of content that we have to get through in two years, and that's a point I'm certain to return to later. And finally, when everything is just an exam basis, there is people set out to fail. That forgotten third is extremely important. It's another quote from a video. When everything is just an exam basis, there is people set out to fail. That forgotten third is extremely important. Now, this statement has been disputed by Daisy Christodoulou at Research Ed. Her argument is that while GCSEs do reveal a spread of performance, they don't create it. And the new GCSEs allow the pass rate to increase if performance increases. But that doesn't quite cut it for me as a counter argument. GCSEs will not allow everyone to get a grade four, no matter how well they perform. Whether it's a third or a quarter, or in GCSE history in 2018, I looked this up, it was 36%. Some students will fall below the desirable standards for attainment in this instance, a grade four. GCSE is effectively norm-referenced. Grades are not set by standards, they are statistically acquired. And if I had my way, I would create a criterion-based assessment system. Yes, the rate of student getting certain grades may fluctuate on a year-by-year -year basis, but in my view, it would be a fairer system for comparison between cohorts and not just within them. That's something I definitely want to hear your thoughts on. Am I talking rubbish when I talk about a criterion-based assessment system? Should we move away from norm assessment? The exam boards in the Department for Education deny that GCSEs and A-levels are a system of norm-based assessment, but surely they are. Surely they're designed for a certain proportion of students to get a certain proportion of marks, regardless of actually how well they've performed on a paper. So what are the solutions? Is our exam system flawed? Is there another way? This is an opportunity now for you to call into the show and share your thoughts on exams, on assessment, the future of exams, what changes you would make. Are exams really the best and the fairest way to assess our young people? Now, going back to that video, um, here are some of the responses that teachers gave. Um, Physics Jamie said, no, keeping your members safe is top priority in reference to NEU. Worry about exams, yes, but now is the wrong time. 
Bethany Rose tweeted, as a member of the NEU, I don't at all support this. Teachers and pupils need stability. Richard Johns said, not the priority for actual teachers, read the room NEU. Tom Sherrington, who's no longer a teacher, but his consultant tweeted, conflating too many issues here, e.g. exam reform and lessons from pandemic, suggest some NEU specialists propose a specific reform and that allow people to see exactly what you're suggesting is better. This rhetoric-driven approach will only entrench the defence for status quo. I tend to agree with that one. It certainly made me come out more in support of the exam system, although I recognise that it's far from a perfect system. Lucy Taylor replied, As a member in rep, I can't support this. The workload and stress has been unimaginable. I've been a maths teacher long enough to remember coursework. It was a joke and far too unreliable. Common theme going on here, I think from those responses. I want to know what you think. Would getting rid of external exams for good have a positive or negative impact for students, for teachers? What about workload? Is that something which hasn't been considered? This is your opportunity to call in, to text in. Let me know what you think. Have that opportunity to win yourself a Teachers Talk Radio mug. And in fact, I've got a caller in right now. Let's have a look who we have got. Fingers crossed, and that we are live on line number one. Fingers crossed. Let's have a look where we are. We've got Shuna on the line. Good afternoon, Shuna. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Enjoying my Sunday. It's and, a very very interesting uh, sort of debate you've got there. I'd love to hear other people's opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've got an opinion. When I first started hearing this talk of is there an alternative to assessments, Uh, to examinations I started fearing that well what are we talking about here is it going back to 100% coursework like we've had in I'm a science teacher so Mm -hmm. science BTEC so I've I've taught under that before or are we talking about modular exams rather than terminal and my view sits with the the benefits to students what are the benefits to students of either system and at the moment I feel there's really real benefits to exams actually um, in, in the learning from it that actually students benefit hugely for a number of different ways. I don't know if you've read or if some of your listeners have read um, Impact magazine from the Chartered College, and it was the last one. It was all about assessment. It was a really interesting article. Uh, I've got it here by Alex Standish and David Perks about the future of public examinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there's a few real quotable quotes in here about why exams are of such benefit to students. So one I've just got here, they provide clear goals and purpose for students and teachers to work towards as well as incentives and rewards. So I guess there they're talking about that idea that you get out what you put in, that students need to learn that. They get a poor result, they work harder, they get the result of the success, and, the, and they learn from that. If you didn't have that examination or those you know, topic tests as you're going along, then they wouldn't learn that way. And mm-hmm. then sitting the examination, I'm quoting again here, sitting the examination forces everyone to complete their preparation, so that revision. And actually, there's a metacognitive effect of that, I think. If students practice that learning, have their exams, their assessments over their history GCSE or their science, then they learn to that, do that, that cycle of evaluating, monitoring, planning and reflecting on their learning so that then they can do better next time. Mm. Isn't, 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 that, isn't that 
idea about self-regulated learning mm-hmm. about planning about monitoring about evaluating exactly, um, exactly can that not can that not be achieved with modular exams as well and in fact mm-hmm. if a self-regulated learning hasn't gone right the first time then perhaps students can learn from that and reflect on that and get it right the next time oh, interested to hear what you think about that Sheena I definitely think that that would work in modular exams yes However, should we penalise them by having them sit an exam in year 10? So in science, when I first started training, we sat, they, they sat a module exam for the first bit of their GCSE in year 10. They haven't had the opportunity to learn all those learning skills, if you want to call them that, or metacognition or self-regulation, that's a good term. Should we not have it as a terminal exam at the end of year 11 instead, as we have now, so that they can have learned all those skills? So year 11, you learn so much through year 11 and actually, I think our current year 13, and I'm thinking of my class now, mm-hmm. they, because they didn't do external exams in 2020, in their year 11, they, I don't feel they have those skills of really having worked hard to the, the end point of their GCSE course, and so they're lacking now. I don't know what other people would say about that. So I yeah. think terminal exams give that benefit over modular. They're yeah, certainly. If you've got year 13, if you're listening along and you've got year 13 classes and you're thinking about how their chances are being affected by the lack of exams in year um, in year 11, then do call in, do, do get involved in the um, conversation. Certainly, I'm looking at what Ofqual said in 2019 here, um, that linear exams favour longer term retention of information and foster a depth of learning. Um one of the thing, one of the criticisms, I suppose, of exams, particularly the new style GCSE student, is the complete is the utter depth of content which students are expected to know, understand, and remember. Certainly, in history, it is an it's absolutely chaotic the amount of content which we are expected to get through in one hundred and twenty hours. Um, do you think that in terms of understanding content and in terms of long-term memory, the exam system that we have now works? Oh, that's a really tough question. With a, yeah, the knowledge-rich curriculum. Um, I'm not sure if I'd go, I'd say our curriculum is chaotic. That's a real shame if you, if you feel that about the history, if it is like that. I think actually I was talking to a colleague the other day and saying, actually, I think our specification and our GCSE right now, I know for AQA, is really good. I'm not sure about other specs. I think it's really good the way it sequences and builds the learning and the knowledge through the curriculum. I think we've got, I think what we've got is in really good shape, actually. You're right, it is a lot. And for some students, it's too much. And so we do have those alternatives. We have combined science rather than your three separate sciences. Mm-hmm. I do think, however, it is necessary for schools to have alternatives as well for students who aren't going to go that academic route. So lots of schools do fantastic options when students pick their options at more vocational courses like construction. You know, lots of these kind of courses being set up. So, yeah, that would be my opinion for that. That we ha- I think it's good, actually, for science, but I can only speak on for science. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that, Shida. Really good to hear that you think that your specification sequence well. Certainly, I think now on reflection, chaotic might be the wrong word, um, but um, I'm trying to think because it is organised, but there's just mm. so much to remember. Um, given that a standard GCSE course should take 120 hours, no matter what the subject is, um, I mean, take let's let's take a history example here. Obviously, with science with double and triple, it's like I imagine yeah, it's yeah. slightly different. I'm not sure exactly what the timings are from your perspective. 
I'm not actually sure of the numbers. That would be my head of department's expert. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, you're right. It's, it does still seem like a lot, even though we have triple the hours of history or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a huge amount to pack in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, looking at history, for example, if we take the Nazi Germany units in um, the different examples, and this is a point where I'm probably going to bring Kelly in, who's on the line, waiting on line two. Um, for Nazi Germany units, AQA, it should, it's, says it should be taught in 30 hours. Fred Excel, 36 hours. OCRB, 24 hours. That's not a lot of time. Even Ed, and we teach Ed Excel, we're expected to teach the whole course in 36 hours. And it is actually a bit of a race. And the worst bit about this is when you're racing to cover content, um, you know, which parts of a specification could be 20 or 30 minute essay questions? Basically, anything specified in the specification could have a big question on it. So Alex Ford actually looked further into this. He looked at how the specifications compared for the Germany units. Um, AQA specifies 57 items which would need depth teaching of some sort. Edexcel 66. OCRB only 20. So what this means is in AQN Excel, you're covering a specification item pretty much every half an hour. And that means a big question on one of those would be almost literally everything you'd ever, you know, been taught about it. If we think about examinations as sampling the domain, to an extent, these questions don't actually sample the domain. It samples everything students know. Um, in OCR, Bevo, there's over an hour per specification item. I'm going to bring in Kelly now. Um, Kelly, you've examined on two history papers. Mm-hmm. Um, you have taught GCSE history for goodness knows how many years now, four <laughs> years, five yeah, years, fifth that, year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what, are, what are your thoughts on the GCSE in history? Uh, that's really interesting, the points you just made about how many hours we're meant to be teaching it. Um, I think the problem with the, the GCSE history is that, yes, OK, you're teaching a particular unit, unit for, say, 36 hours. But when it gets to the exam, that's just one hour or an hour and 15 minutes or whatever it might be. And yet you're testing all of that knowledge that they've supposedly learned over 36 hours. And mm. something doesn't fit quite right where you're learning something for two years, maybe even three, if you start the GCSE in year nine. And then it all boils down to just one hour of an exam. And it's like, you know, again, that could be on literally anything. It could be something extremely specific. Um, and it, it's just really challenging, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. And again, I'm looking at the history specifications for now. For Nazi control and dictatorship, a topic we know very well, uh, we've just finished teaching it um, to year 11. In the OCR content, it says for... Um, Control and dictatorship, the creation of a dictatorship, it says the following. Hitler and the Nazi Party in January 1933. Establishing the dictatorship, January 1933 to July 1933. And achieving total power, July 1933 to August 1934. Ultimately, what that means is if in the OCRB specification, a question about the creation of a dictatorship could only really be asked about one of those topics. Look at Edexcel. I'm sure you know the Edexcel specification, but it's off the top of your head, Kelly. Mm. But just to remind you, it's the Reichstag fire, the enabling act, the banning of other parties and trade unions, the threat from Rome and the SA, the night of the long nights and the death of Hindenburg. Hitler becomes fewer of the army and oath of allegiance. In theory, you could be asked about any of those things. Mm. And does that make, do you think, do you think that's fair that students sitting different 
exam boards may have different expectations in terms of what is to be learned and in what depth? That's a tricky one. It it doesn't seem fair on the face of it. I think Edexcel is extremely content heavy. And bearing in mind, this is just one paper out of three that we're talking about and four mm. different units. Um, I was sort of thinking about the different exams. And out of the three, I'd probably like the Germany one the most because it also tests skills. So looking at mm. sources and interpretations. And I think that allows students to you know, kind of use the skills that they've learned over the the period of the two years and bearing in mind say I can't remember how many questions maybe it's four questions in the exam that don't actually require any knowledge Mm. it means that everyone can give those a go whereas I really don't like paper two because it's 100% knowledge yeah and at that point it just becomes a memory test or how much can you remember on a very specific thing depending on what comes up on that particular day Um, and I think that is really challenging and obviously different exam boards have got different types of questions and they've got different content i do think edxl is quite challenging in terms of the amount of content uh, content and the style of questions as well in, in for example paper two where mm. they you know we have two completely separate um topics that we do in paper two so we're going to do american west and elizabethan england and they kind of have to switch their brains in a <laughs> matter of seconds of go right i'm finished with elizabeth now i'm going to go on to american west and completely different style of questions as well. That's really challenging. And all of it is knowledge. There's nothing there to help you. You know, no sources or interpretations or anything. So I think it's really difficult. Um, I do feel for our history students, for sure. Oh, I feel for our history <laughs> students as well. I'm going to pass back to Shun before I introduce um, Gareth. Um, Shun, uh, you've heard that little conversation between me and Kelly, mm. particularly about the extent of content which is being taught, and in particular perhaps the overload um, in terms of switching from one topic to another, talking about paper two in particular. Um, to what extent, I mean, this is going to be a very difficult out there question, so good luck, Shuna, but to what extent do you think that exams can produce cognitive overload and overload in particular of a working memory and what are the best ways to sort of avoid that? Well, that's a big question. Uh, I, I was going to say, actually, first, just listening to two other historians talking about your specification. It, it, it's one of many times that I thought, oh, I wish I'd go back and study that. That, that sounds fascinating. Um, yeah, right, cognitive overload on exams. Yeah, maybe. I mean, in science, there's such an amount of knowledge and you are only ever sitting an exam on biology or on chemistry or on physics. It's not those mixed together. But mm-hmm. lots of questions are synoptic. I'd yeah. say that's the first thing that springs to mind. And actually, that can be a blessing and a curse. Blessing in that, actually, if your knowledge is good, you can bring in all those different topics together and make a really good answer. And on a higher paper, you will get those, and a student can do really well on them if they've practiced them. And uh, however, it's a curse in that it's a lot to learn, and a student won't make all those connections at first. You don't mm. get those so much on a foundation paper. So, yeah, I'm going to sit on the fence there and say that, yeah, it can be a good thing or not. You need to be able to tie knowledge together as a Mm. scientist. So if you want to take the sciences further, that's necessary. That load is necessary. Interesting. I'm also thinking sort of about the the impact of working memory on the literal process of sitting sitting in the exam. I'm just thinking about those different components which could overload working memory. So, for example... 
knowing how much time you have for the whole paper, knowing the timings for specific questions, having an understanding of question structures. If, for example, in science, you have a six mark question, you have to approach it in a particular way. Certainly in history of our eight markers, 12 markers, 16 markers, um, there's a lot of demands on that as well. Um, also sort of the, you know, the planning stages as well. I'm just trying to think, is, is there a better way? I'd love to hear other people's opinions, know the alternatives on that. I think I still keep coming back to this idea that it's needed for life. That if you're learning to drive, for example, that's a hugely loading thing on working memory. You know, you learn to drive and you cannot think of everything at once. You end up forgetting to steer because you're looking at traffic lights, or whatever. So I think students, our students do need to practice doing that in whatever domain. They need to learn to deal with lots of different uh, interacting elements, different aspects of what they're doing, whether it's the practical tied in with a diagram, tied in with a graph, and working that into a right answer. So, mm. so I think we need to stretch them in that way. Otherwise, yeah, I hope the driving is a good example. That we need to practice, yeah. yeah, thinking of lots of things at once. I think I think the point about practice is really interesting. Um, at the same time, though, I would say is is practicing exam technique is practicing answers is that practice actually detracting away from the quality curriculum which we're supposed to be delivering to students and it's an interesting point and one i'm certainly going to try and come back to i'm now going to bring on dr gareth bates who's been waiting very very patiently on the end there on line three um gareth if you could introduce yourself i think i need to unmute you first although you might have uh, unmuted yourself yeah. i can hear you loud and clear perfect <laughs> um if you can just introduce yourself and um, your thoughts on the discussion so far and um anything you'd like to add yeah thank you thank you very much yeah so my name's uh, dr gareth bates and i'm a senior lecturer at the university of bedfordshire in teacher education and prior to that i was in uh, secondary schools for about 10 years uh, as a, a science teacher and then uh, a head of science so yeah i've i've been uh, loving this uh, debate and to be fair you've touched on lots of sort of my thoughts and lots of sort of uh, concerns or things that considerations I would say that uh, teachers need to have around examination so um, I, I find it interesting that you've sort of picked up on the idea of specification um, and you know as, as a head of science when the new GCSEs came in you know I, I had to consider which specification that uh, I, I went with and you know if you think about that from kind of a, a national perspective that, that, that the, there's some questions that that sort of raises that you know we're actually not necessarily teaching a national curriculum uh, at key stage four because actually we're teaching towards um, sort of idiosyncrasies of a particular specification and I, I find that that's been um, interesting sort of um, debate that sort of come out from the, the two speakers that, that you've uh, had previously. So, so that to me is one thing that's problematic. And you know, you quite rightly said uh, 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 earlier, Tom, that you know, do, are, are you actually, is the GCSE and it, testing a specification or are you looking at how they've learned your subjects through the, the national curriculum? So that, that's one sort of problem I see uh, around sort of uh, specification anyway. Uh, the last 
uh, thing that you talked about, again, is something that uh, I find quite interesting, the, the idea of uh, cognitive load uh, around examinations. And uh, I don't disagree that that's a useful skill to be able to um, work, you know, sort of a, through quite an intensive period uh, to sort of get through all your examinations. But if you kind of think about the skills that's required, you know, it is about having good sort of working memory to hold and retain that information. As, as you quite rightly said, the, the skills to answer the particular uh, questions on, on the paper. And, and actually, you need to be really skilled at forgetting because, you, you know, the next day or even in, the, in that afternoon, you've got to reload up your working memory with uh, the, you know, the, the completely different subject that you've got on that day or the day after. So, so there are some sort of skills there that are required. But I suppose that the question that I have is, you know, what, what is the purpose of the exam? And what we've seen with particularly the teacher assessed grades is that the grades that were given um, are based on, you know, the, the absolute potential that that child has. And I think, unfortunately, what the, the exams do is not necessarily let all children demonstrate their potential and uh, for, for the various reasons that we've discussed. And the, just my sort of final point, really, before, you know, you can sort of come in and, and I'd like to hear other people's thoughts is, mm -hmm. you know, this is a level two qualification. You know, lots of people will then use this to go on to, to level three. But what we see is people being sort of not allowed to, to follow certain pathways because they didn't achieve a particular grade. So there was some... Um, debate on on Twitter for instance around mathematics and I, I know this practice happens in, in other subjects as well it just so happened to be in maths but you know what grade would you allow a student to have at GCSE to do a level mathematics well if you've passed at level two uh, you've passed your GCSE you've got your grade four then surely you should be allowed to do mathematics at level three so mm -hmm. so there are some inherent problems around examinations um, but you know I'm, I'm, I'm not some sort of rad radical uh, sort of person here you know I think exams are here to stay but I think mm -hmm. there are questions about how can you make the exam paradigm fairer or provide the opportunities that they're supposed to. Certainly to show to ensure that students can demonstrate their full potential it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, some really, really interesting points raised there, and certainly with a mathematics point. I mean, I, I had, I for one reason or another last week, I ended up looking at our school's in entry requirements for sleep form. Um, for maths, um, we asked for a grade six at GCSE, and a grade seven is desirable. Now, we're not, a, we're not one of those schools like, I don't know, Brompton Manor, which says, oh, you need eights and nines if you want to get anywhere near here. In history, we'll take you with a grade five, in some cases, for grade four. Um so it's certainly a very interesting question about the purpose of exams in terms of moving on to level three qualifications. I'm going to move back to Shuna and then Kelly with this question about whether or not exams are a way of allowing students to demonstrate their true potential. And if not, what are the alternatives? So I'm going to start with Shuna on that one. If exams are exams really the best and fairest way to ensure that students can demonstrate their 
tree potential in a subject compared to some of the teacher assessment measures we've seen over the last couple of years? Oh, that is a big question, isn't it? I would love to hear about the alternatives, you know, more details about how this would work in science. But I think for exams at the moment, exams do offer, you know, evidence of a learner of how good they are in certain areas, in lots of different areas. In Do they understand the knowledge? Can they remember? Can they synthesize it into an answer? Can they uh, talk about the practical, you know, everything, all of these different parts. So it does show off the, the student's potential. Um, in terms of alternatives, I'm not sure how well you could do that with a teacher assessed grade um, being the norm. I think I can I think think of students who, whilst we took some best of grades for some of them and we put together the fairest teacher assessed grades that we could with all the evidence we had, I think there's some students who actually could shine out more in a terminal exam who weren't able to show that over their exams that they had during that you know, period of years or months that led up to those teacher assessed grades. I think I can think of certain students in my classes at year 11 last year who missed out on that system. Yeah. So I, yeah, this is biased because I, I, do, I do think exams are better to a terminal exam, not assessed by the teacher. I also think it's fairer because an exam set by an exam board and maybe that should be one exam board like they have in Scotland. Maybe that's that's a question there. Um, but I think that them being done by the school, separate schools, separate systems would not be fair in the future. I think there's many individual schools who've done it very fairly and a really good system. But you can't uh, make a what's the word I'm looking for? A uniform, you know, consistent across nationally based mm. on teacher assessed grades. I fear that that wouldn't be fair for students. Certainly interesting what you talk about in terms of fairness, and this is where I want to bring Kelly in. But before that, I just want to read out what Dr. James Shea's put in the chat, who I think is one of Gareth's colleagues. Um, he says, tags have shown there is a large group of students who every year could be moving into post-level two futures, but who are prevented due to the off-quote imposed cap on grade fours and above, regardless of their quality of work. Yeah, really, really interesting points there. Um, of course, what, what TAGS also did was, um, in terms of so-called grade inflation, is the inflation, particularly A-level, was at the A&A &A star level. And there were a lot of students who walked away with A's and A stars who, in a system whereby the number of grades were capped and defined in an external system, would not have walked away with those. And that put huge, huge strains onto the universities. Um, another thing which James said on Twitter a few days ago, which I found made me laugh, I'm just going to try and find where it is. And it's a question for all of you, I suppose, at some point. But um, given what's happening with grade boundaries, that there's going to be some this sort of midpoint between 20, 20, 2019 and 2021 for 2022-2022, um, exams, but then by 2023 we'll be moved back to the lower, to the sort of lower distribution of grades in 2019. Will there be year tens and year twelves who are taking their GCSEs and A levels a year early in order to take advantage of the slightly higher, um, you know, the higher distributions of grades? Um, but this is where I want to bring Kelly in. Um, we're talking about fairness for exams. Um, if you're looking at Ofqual's um, summary of findings for exams, what you find is for English and history, the chances of students receiving their definitive grade plus or minus one came in at 96%. And what that implies is that 4% of students in external exams 
were two grades or more from their definitive grade. And this is purely, I think, because of the discrepancies in marking between English and history. What this could mean is a child in GCSE English gaining a grade three rather than a grade five. And with reviews at over 40 quid a review, you know, a, a student who wishes to confirm their marks in the four or five problematic subjects that they may have taken would be shelling out 200 quid on results day. You've marked, for example, before, Kelly, how stringent is that marking? How much disagreements, how much scope is there? And does that resonate with you at all? Mm, that's really interesting. So I've, I've exam marked for two papers in history, paper one and paper three. And I actually found the process to be really rigorous. So we have uh, standardisation training. We have training how to mark. You have um, like a team leader who will check your marking. It has to be signed off before you can do any more. They will check a pool of of your um, marking as well. So actually, I think it, it's pretty thorough. Um, so I'm quite surprised to to hear that. Although I don't know. Having said that, I mean, a few years ago when I had my GCSE group go through, I recommended maybe five or six of them get their exam paper remarked because they were one mark off the grade above. Not a single one came back as a positive. They all mm. stayed the same, um, which is a little bit surprising. Uh, so I wonder if some of those sort of discrepancies are really close on the border, perhaps, and it's just rather like one grade um, or one mark away from that grade rather than having that really enormous sort of gap. I don't know. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, Gareth, um, if I bring you in now, um, well, yeah, what do you what do you make of this, this idea that in some subjects, the idea of actually what a grade is for some students is different to others? You've got your science background and as the Shuna, whereby you would expect it to be a bit more, a bit closer in terms of those definitive grades. And that's what the off-pole data suggests. What do you make of this? Yeah, so so I, I examine as well. So I mark uh, for, for two different exam boards, believe it or not, not just across uh, different papers. And um, I, I think, again, this taps into some of, of the sort of earlier points and questions that I, I raised. And... Um, the the internal systems are very very robust so you know I'll, I'll just say that you know off the bat that both like the two exam boards i work for very robust internally however what the the what is required bit is the things that can differ and that's down to essentially the chief examiner who who wrote the paper so mark scheme changes uh, across different exam boards, uh, even across sometimes different papers. Um, so, for instance, if you have a foundation and a higher paper where you have the common questions, the two chief examiners have to sit down and kind of agree the mark scheme across because you get completely different answers on, or you potentially, sorry, could get completely different answers on the foundation to the higher. Um, but, but, but that's that's kind of the, the thing, isn't it? It's like you say, in a way, science should be science, and you should you are kind of um, getting the marks for the correct science, or you should be getting the marks for the correct science. But there are idiosyncrasies within the exam due to the, essentially the chief examining team, and you know where you sort of game the system, I suppose, is you learn you learn what the examiners want, you learn sort of you know what's acceptable and what's not, and I'm sure Shuna will sort of know these sorts of things. You know, you, you should say this, you don't say that because you won't pick up the mark. So you, 
that comes into your teaching. You know, you learn from that. But like I, you know, I won't give the exact example, but there was one that I found quite amusing um, a couple of years ago where I just thought, gosh, if I just asked the kids that wrote that, I'm, I'm sure they would have told me what the right answer was. Um, it just, as we said, it didn't, didn't give them the opportunity on the day to um, show what they actually meant. Um, you know, it's, their written res response was deemed not to be correct. So I, I think you get it in all exams. Um, but like I say, you know, is that, is that what we're, we're trying to do? You know, for me, it would be, yes, you know, you have to have the exam. Like I say, I'm not being radical. I'm not saying get scrap exams. I think you have to have the exam. But, you know, I think if you teach a good curriculum, the, the exam will come and you should be inspiring children to sort of take your subject further. I think that should mm. be the point. One, one solution which Daisy Christodoulou has suggested from No More Marking is um, rather than these short written answers in some subjects like science, whereby you have to use certain command words to get marks and things, um, using a system of multiple choice questions. Mm. Um, is that something you might perhaps yeah. be in favour of? Yeah, so you see that in, so like edXL A-level, um, I've taught the International Baccalaureate as well, and they have uh, a whole paper of uh, multiple choice questions. And um, really well-designed multiple choice questions are, are really excellent because if you build them properly, so if you have a look for science, for instance, so you do the diagnostic uh, assessment type questions that uh, best are uh, developing, you can, you know, it's very hard to guess the right answer. You know, what, what you can do is you can kind of man manipulate the other answers to expose misconceptions. So I think really well-designed multiple choice questions absolutely uh, can, um, can sort of help in, in, in that respect as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to pass that one over to Shuda. Do you agree multiple choice questions instead of, say, short one mark, two mark written answers? What are your thoughts on that, Shuda? Oh, it's an interesting idea, yeah. Um, I mean, my first thought is uh, at university, one of my modules or a couple of my modules might have been assessed just with multiple choice. And actually, that does not, doesn't make it easier. It's challenging, especially if you have negative marking, whereby you, know, you get marks taken away for wrong answers. Um, yeah, it's an idea we want to explore. I think on that point about the grade inflation, though, and what the exam board should do now to, to set that straight, whatever it is, it has to be fair for the students over the next few years you know the students who are in year seven eight now whatever it is it has to be fair for them entering sixth form colleges entering universities apprenticeships that they're not penalized um mm. on the, the older students today but is that it but I, but if you certainly think about some of the students say our current year 10s who will be sitting gcse's next year 2023 and will be assessed back at 2019 standards if they're applying for jobs or applying for courses compared to students who are year eight older who are assessed according to a different standard surely that isn't fair so surely there's no way around that that's a big question yeah i, I don't know what the answer is to that that is a huge mis unfortunate consequence of the pandemic and the great inflation we've had um yeah that's that's something very difficult that ofqual needs to come to decision about to make it fair for the young people mm. and finally just because i've got my eye on, eye on it, so i'm going to go to kelly finally um multiple choice questions in history exams do you think it could work uh, no, 
<laughs> Quite honestly, I don't think we can have multiple choice questions in history. Um, I'm, I'm not because... saying to, I'm not saying to replace essays. I'm saying alongside them. Uh, I'm not convinced personally. I think no, I, I really can't see it working particularly, uh, just from a history point of view. Um, and actually what I quite enjoy about when I'm marking uh, as an exam marker, it's students who bring in additional knowledge that I didn't necessarily know, oh, because yeah. some of our papers do lend themselves to that. So, for example, in our medicine through time paper, you would get a really broad question. It could be explain why there was progress in the Renaissance. And I have had in the past students bring in stuff which is not in the textbook. They've gone beyond and they've clearly used knowledge that they knew from elsewhere. And this happened when I was exam marking and they 100% got the marks. And I don't know, I think if you have multiple choice questions, potentially that would limit some of that, uh, you know, where students can go a little bit outside of the box or outside the book um, and include some additional knowledge. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, I'm not, not Maybe, sure I'm a fan of that. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, you could export them to examples. You call them show you know quizzes, couldn't you? Well, yeah, uh, but anyway, <laughs> thanks so much to Sheena, to Kelly and to Gareth, who have um, been absolutely fantastic guests and had some re really, really interesting discussion. Um, I've enjoyed it and I hope that you, the listeners, have it as well. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Da, da, da. I see Nathan's in the studio. I don't mind going a few minutes over if you want to call in Nathan and talk about the exam system and primary and SATs and phonics and times tables and things like that. I might not necessarily have the main knowledge, but feel free to call in. I'll extend it five minutes if you want to call in. Um, failing that, um, we're now approaching the end of this one-off edition of the afternoon show on the 3rd of October. Thanks to Polly from the Youth Advisory Board of the National Deaf Children's Society for recording an interview on her experiences as a deaf student. And thanks to our callers, Shuna, Gareth and Kelly, discussing and debating the future of exams and assessment. It's also the end of our Sunday offering for today. Tomorrow is Monday. We've got four shows lined up for you. Our Krishna Sami kicks things off at 7am with a breakfast show, which I usually listen to on my commute. Then Tabitha McIntosh hosts the morning break at 9am when I'm teaching Year 9, so I'll catch up on that one. In the afternoon, I'll be listening to Rebecca Ricketts from 4pm on the drive home, discussing developing a whole school reading culture. And then Emily Follerancho at 8pm hosting a debate on the use of booklets in the classroom. That in the red corner, it's Mark Enzer, and in the blue corner, it's Clive Hill with Barry Smith. Can't wait for that one. We're always on the lookout for brand new hosts and we have a number of debuts over the next couple of weeks. Joe Arde starts this Wednesday lunchtime at half past one. Um, Gemma Drinkle kicks off on Tuesday the 19th of October with a drive home. And this Saturday, as I mentioned, right at the start of my show, Joseph Hammond picks up where I've left off with a Saturday lunch. If you'd like to try hosting the show yourself, why not DM us at TT Radio 2021 on Twitter? Fill out the contact form on our website, ttradio.org forward slash contact, or send us an email at teacherstalkradio at gmail.com. We're keen to promote as wide a range of voices as possible from all sectors of education, early years, primary, secondary, FE, HE, initial teacher training, adult education, careers education, teaching assistants, whoever you are, I'm sure I've missed things out. Take the plunge and apply. 
The fun thing is I've got no idea, absolutely no idea when I'll next be on. So I'll see you at some point in the future for another fun show when I'll be covering for somebody else. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Starting to slip away. I've got piles of marking in front of me to do. Back to the grind tomorrow. Tune in. Talk it out. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.